0: Again, a good morning to everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians. After the members' meeting on Wednesday night, I went home, obviously, and uh, Allison said to me, that was a pretty funny joke about the countdown clock. I said, my dear, that was no joke. And... Uh, I was shocked at how well it went this morning. That was pretty shocking, wasn't it, Brian? But kudos to everyone. Uh, Sticking with the Wednesday night members meeting, I owe a public apology, don't I? For the dessert debacle. Uh, That's what it will be known as uh, for generations to come. I dropped the ball somewhere along the line, but my apologies apologies for that. Have you found 1 Corinthians? Chapter 1, I invite you to follow along as I begin reading in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. I'm going to ask Teresa to bring up a slide behind me on the screen. If you were here last Lord's Day, you saw it. Uh, There's the outline that we're following uh, to 1 Corinthians. It's very simple. An introduction. We've studied it together already. It lays the foundation for the whole book because in that introduction... Paul unpacks the Christian's identity, what it means to be called of God into fellowship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll see there on the screen that from chapter 1, verse 10, where we began reading this morning, through to chapter 6, verse 20, Paul is responding to a report. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, through to the end of chapter 15, he is responding to a letter And then we have the conclusion. Next slide, Teresa. We have entered, obviously, that first big section. Paul's response to a report. Some of Chloe's people, we don't know exactly who they were, but some of Chloe's people have evidently visited Paul, who is in the city of Ephesus as he writes this letter. They have visited him and they have reported to him What is transpiring back in the local church in Corinth? And they identify four disturbing problems. Quarreling, boasting, defrauding, and sinning. Well, you see exactly where we are then in our study of this letter. We have entered that big chunk in which Paul is responding to a report. Within that report, we are now dealing with the first issue. The first disturbing problem, quarreling. It begins in chapter 1, verse 10, all the way through to the end of chapter 4, verse 21. Now, Teresa, you can bring up the next slide. This is the third one, and we will get there in just a moment. For now, return with me to the text. As we enter then this section, chapter 1, verse 10, through to chapter 4, verse 21, in which Paul addresses this first disturbance in the church at Corinth, quarreling. And notice, firstly, his command, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Notice three things quickly. Notice his urgency. I appeal to you. I plead with you. I'm begging you, is essentially what he is saying. It conveys a sense of urgency. Notice, secondly, his authority. I appeal to you, brothers, By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who called who called me, the one who appointed me to serve as an apostle. I am speaking in that name. I am speaking by that authority, and I am issuing this command, this exhortation by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have his urgency, we have his authority. And then notice, thirdly, the main emphasis in this command, namely unity. You'll find the word that three times. It serves as a conjunction. And so it introduces three thoughts. There's the first one, that, number one, all of you agree. And that, number two, there be no divisions among you. But that, there's number three, You be united in the same mind and the same judgment. That command governs the entire section. Never lose sight of it. All the way through to the end of chapter 4, he is building on that command. Notice the problem. Verse 11, 4. So I'm going to explain why I have just issued this command. It is because it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And this quarreling, he goes on to describe it all the way through to verse 16. The source of this quarreling is very simple. People in the church professing Christians, believers, he does not question that, Believers in the church at Corinth are seeking status, self-validation through their identification with human leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of Paul. I'm identifying with Paul because Paul baptized me. Ooh, the apostle to the Gentiles. Well, I'm of Cephas. That's Peter. I'm of Cephas. I'm name-dropping Peter here, there, and everywhere because Peter, he was one of the three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Well, I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Apollos because he was, as we read in the book of Acts, after all, extremely eloquent, well-spoken, gifted. He could mesmerize us with his words. And so I'm of Apollos. And on and on it went. And because people were seeking their own status by identifying with these men, this was leading to divisions and quarreling within the church. That's the problem. And then the remedy. It begins in verse 17 and carries on, obviously. All the way through to the end of chapter 4. And there's the remedy then on the screen. Okay? This is how Paul handles this. Here's my command. Right? Three points to that command. And here's the problem. I've identified it uh, because I've heard this report. And this has led to my exhortation. And now here is my remedy. This is what I want us to understand. Firstly, how God saves. Secondly, who God saves. Thirdly, Paul speaking, how I preach. Fourthly, what I preach. In other words, the content of my preaching. Fifthly, how we, and there he is speaking of Peter and the other apostles and prophets, how we minister. And then lastly, why we minister. And then some concluding thoughts. And his point then in all of these verses, this big section is what? It is to demonstrate, look, when you seek status by identifying yourself with some human leader, you are acting contrary to your identity in Christ Jesus. You are acting contrary to the very nature of the gospel. And you are acting in direct contradiction to these six things. There you got it. That's his point. Can we just move on to chapter 5? That's what he's doing here. And so we're going to unpack it. I think a sermon on each of these, and it will take us then obviously well into October. But you know then where we are today. Teresa, you can take away the slides. No more PowerPoint. You know exactly where we are then in terms of the thought flow, Paul's thought flow in 1 Corinthians, a command a problem, a remedy. We're considering today the first piece in that remedy, how God saves. I want you to notice five things in the text. And these five points, as some of you stare at your sermon notes, yes, they correspond to those five points under the sermon title. One, one, two, two. You follow along and you'll do just fine. Here's the first point he makes how God saves, the first thing he wants them to grasp. The method, the method how God saves, which is preaching, is folly. He wants them to grasp that. The method is folly. Where do I get that? It's right there in verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied. Of its power. The method. I employ. Says Paul. Is. Folly. Why? Because the world. Cherishes. Eloquence. And wisdom. This is what the world. Cherishes. This is what the world. Esteems. In a nutshell. In short. The world. Esteems. It values. It cherishes. Form over substance. Paul's point is what? When it comes to the preaching of the gospel, the method by which God saves people, we value, it values what? Substance over form. And it is absolute folly, foolishness in the world's eyes. The goal of preaching, the world does not get this, Many, sadly, in the church do not get this. The goal of preaching is not to entertain. It is not to amaze. It is not to inspire. It is to impart substance. And the substance is the gospel, the message of truth that God has entrusted to his people. But that method, in the world's estimation, absolute sheer folly, Foolishness. Second point I want us to get is this the message, not only the method preaching, but the message is folly. Look at verse 18. For the word of the cross, what is the word of the cross? It's the gospel, it's Christ from his incarnation to his glorification. It is the full revelation of God in Christ Jesus. This word of the cross is folly stupidity, foolishness, madness to those who are perishing. He builds on it. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks or Gentiles seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. That's our message. And it is a stumbling block to Jews and it is folly to Gentiles. Sheer folly. This idea that a crucified king can take away our sins. The idea that God would become incarnate and that God would walk among us and that the God man himself upon Calvary's cross would bear our sin, the wrath of God, the fury of hell, and he would do all of that as our substitutionary sacrifice. The fact that this king would epitomize such weakness, such vulnerability, such humiliation, absolute foolishness, Christ crucified. But it is the content, the message we preach. Notice thirdly, he says, this folly, so the method we employ, and more importantly, the message we proclaim, this folly, is God's power for salvation. Verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He builds on it. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Again, verse 24, but to those who are called, it's absolute foolishness to unbelievers, but to those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, it doesn't matter, what is Christ crucified, the message we preach? It is Christ. It is the power of God. It is his chosen means, his chosen vehicle by which he manifests his power. It is a wonder of wonders because the cross itself conveys such frailty and vulnerability. And yet the cross stands as the greatest manifestation of testimony to the power of God. It is the proclamation of the gospel that changes people because God chooses to work in it to call people to himself. So the method, folly in the world's eyes. The message, equally foolish in the world's eyes. But it is this folly that is God's power for salvation. Fourth point we must get is this. This folly, the method and the message, is the wisdom of God. Right there at the end of verse 24, you see that phrase? Christ, yes, the power of God. Christ preached the power of God. It is also the wisdom of God. One preacher expanding on this stated the following. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. It is sheer wisdom. It is the gospel alone that tells us how we who are sinners can be reconciled to an offended God. It is the gospel alone that tells us how we, sinners, Can discover and know peace of mind and peace of conscience. It is the gospel and the gospel alone that tells us sinners the nature of true blessedness. And what it is to know God as our happiness and find our soul's delight in him alone. Oh, the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Christ Crucified. Sheer madness for those who are perishing. The absolute power of God for those who believe unto salvation. Here's the fifth point we must get. The last one. By this folly, this preaching, God destroys, he obliterates, decimates the world's wisdom. Verse 19. For it is written. And here Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah. I, God speaking, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? He makes the same point, more or less, verse 25. For the foolishness of God, that is the method and the message of the gospel. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness, what appears to be weakness, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Hear it, please. The world cherishes power, influence, prestige, and status. Here is the thing we must grasp if we have not grasped this already. God has secured our salvation by means of that which is the exact opposite of that which the world holds in such high regard, a crucified Christ. Could anything be more antithetical to the power, the influence, the prestige and the status? which this world holds so dear. And so put it all together, pack it all together. Paul's point, it's obvious as he makes his way through this section, it's obvious why, let me put words in his mouth, why are, he's writing to the church at Corinth, why are you still embracing the world's values? Given how God saves, given these facts, Given the nature of the gospel, given what we proclaim Christ crucified as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, why do you still embrace the world's values? That makes no sense. Why are you still seeking status on the basis of that which the world cherishes? That makes no sense. Why are you creating division? By seeking self-validation through your identification with mere men. That too makes no sense. Back to the command, therefore, in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Keep in mind at all times how God saves. Six points of application I want to take from this. Six points. I'm going to give them to you by way of questions. And I'll add a little bit to these questions and uh, maybe give an example here or there. We'll see how the time goes. But six points of application that I want to make sure we derive from this text. The first is this, by way of a question. Do we, believers of Grace Community Church, do we seek an identity that sets us apart from others? Ultimately, that's what's transpiring in the church of Corinth. You have a bunch of believers who are seeking an identity other than their identity in Christ. They are seeking to identify themselves, in this instance, with human leaders, but identify themselves with someone or something that sets them apart, if not in their own estimation, over others in order to accomplish what? Achieve their own status. We might do this through people. We might do it through causes. We might do it through movements. We might do it through methodologies. We might do it through schools, jobs, tribes, titles, families, ideologies. The list is endless. Oh, the lesson of the text is this. We need a unity in the context of the church, especially in the context of the local church. We need a unity larger than our special interest groups. It's true in the world as well, isn't it? Oh, it's even more true in the context of the church. The need for a unity larger than our special interest groups. We need a unity rooted in an identity that is derived from Christ alone. That's the first lesson. Second point of application is this, a question. Do we believe That the preaching of the gospel possesses God's power to convert and change people. Do we really believe it is God's power for salvation? Here's the question again. Do we believe that the preaching of the gospel possesses God's power to convert and change people? It's true in the Sunday school classroom. It is true in the counseling session. It is true in family devotions. It is true in Sunday worship. It is true in the Good News Club. It is the preaching of Christ crucified. That is the means by which God is pleased to manifest his power in converting and in changing people. Let me just, oh, it'll save you from such disappointment. It's off the top of my head. I mean, even as a preacher, it saves me from such disappointment. The awareness that ultimately what I do is in the hands of the Almighty. Sunday school teacher, ultimately what you do is in the hands of God. God. Uh, Dad, as you lead devotions in your living room, what you are doing is in the hands of God. Those who go and speak at the Good News Club, those who spoke recently at the VBS, the soccer camp, those as you, as you speak to your neighbor over the fence, please understand your message, Christ crucified. And please understand, it is God's chosen means, I dare say, his only chosen means by which he is pleased to manifest his power in converting and changing people. Be convinced of it, and it will spare you from all sorts of disillusionment and disappointment. It will spare us from innovation as the church goes off wildly pursuing all sorts of innovations and changes in our days. All of these ideas will, oh, if only we did this, if only we did that, if only we could make it more palatable If only we could make it more open to all those seekers we think are out there. If only somehow we could change our methodology, somehow we would be more effective. Oh, remembering this simple truth, that it is the preaching, the proclamation of Christ crucified. That is God's power for salvation. It is the means through which, again, he converts people. And he changes people. Third question is this, point of application. Do we rejoice? This comes out of the text. Do we rejoice in the fact that God uses, this great truth, that the simple proclamation of the gospel is God's power for salvation. Do we rejoice in the fact that God uses weak, ordinary, unspectacular, uninspiring, and inconsequential people to accomplish his purposes. I think it's a great source of comfort. Let me repeat it. Do we rejoice in the fact that God uses weak, ordinary, unspectacular, uninspiring, and inconsequential people to accomplish his purposes? I don't sit on any boards. I don't know anyone important. I'm not particularly smart or witty. I'm not very influential. I don't walk the corridors of power. Oh, God is pleased to use the weakest of vessels... He is pleased to show forth his power and the foolishness of this age and this world and all that it holds dear through the weakest of vessels, employing them to extend his kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. We need to hear this today. Uh, Do I belabor it? I think I'll belabor it just a little bit. We need to hear it today because I actually firmly believe, maybe I should have put this in the introduction, I don't know, but I actually firmly believe that these verses speak rather pointedly to evangelicalism in our day. Um, I think evangelicalism in our day is suffering from all sorts of things. Uh, I think one of the things in particular it is suffering from is the very thing Paul has identified here whereby we here in, a, in America are seeking status through evangelical leaders, our evangelical rock stars, so to speak. And I think it's become a real problem. I think it's become actually a huge problem. Um, let me just give you a few examples. Uh, why, is it, why is it that when the athlete or the musician or the actor Merely so much as mentions the name Jesus. We're all of a sudden talking about this person. Facebook, it's all over the place. He's one of ours. She's one of ours. Why do we do that? Why? It is because we are evaluating status through that which the world esteems. We want to be esteemed on the same basis as the world Therefore, we elevate those things, power, beauty, prestige, influence, athleticism, whatever it is, and someone so much as mentions Jesus, all of a sudden, we're building up a movement around that individual. Why is it in our day? Men, and I don't blame the men necessarily themselves, although I do obviously place much blame there, but I wonder why it is people even allow it. Why it is we are, within evangelicalism, developing entire ministries and movements around a man. Why are we doing that? Why? It's a cult of personality, I think, to a great extent. i me give you just one more example. I got a bunch of them, but I better cut myself off before someone else does. Why is it in our day we idolize Those pastors, those preachers who are well-known, media-savvy, and those whom we deem culturally relevant. I just gave you a bunch of questions. This text speaks to all of that. This text speaks, I think, to a great extent, much of evangelicalism and what plagues it in our own day. Oh, a powerful reminder. Do we rejoice in the fact that God uses weak, ordinary unspectacular, uninspiring, and inconsequential people to accomplish his his purposes, and he loves to do so. Why? So that no one ever mistakes what? That it is simply Christ crucified, the proclamation of that message, which is God's power for salvation. Gladys Wright. You ever heard of her? She was my Sunday school teacher. From the time I was maybe four years of age till I was eight or nine, I didn't think I was getting anywhere. I was in the same class for about four or five years. She was a spinster. We don't have to use that word. I don't know if that's got negative connotations nowadays. But back in my day, that's what she was. She was a spinster. This older woman crouched over. And she would spend hours, countless hours, making these little little figurines and little things that she would use to instruct us and teach us all of these Bible stories. Oh, the impact, the profound impact that woman lost to history had upon me. Hugh Beatty. Bill Eckerman, Ray Barham, ever heard of them? Elders growing up in the local church where I was raised and reared. Alf Poland, Paul Logan, ever heard of them? missionaries in far-off places that my parents had in, in my home growing up for a meal. Oftentimes, I had to give up my room so that they could spend the night as they went around to different places preaching and speaking of the Lord's labors, the Lord's work in other places. I could go on and on and on and on. Men and women, absolutely inconsequential of no significance at all in the world's eye. Oh, but God using them in my life, they were God's power to convert me and to change me. We've got the whole thing inverted in our day. We really do, friends. The whole thing, we've stood it on its head. How God delights to work through weakness. How God delights to work through suffering. And in so doing, demonstrate that the wisdom of this world is absolute foolishness. All that this world holds dear, all that belongs to this present age that is passing away, oh, before the wisdom and power of God, those things are sheer folly. I'll give you one more example. The time's going, but I, I, I promise to shift gears after this. When, when Allie and I were back home, back in, in Canada there, back in July, a childhood friend of mine, his, his mother passed away, so we went, to the, we went to the funeral, and at the funeral, um, there was a brother, I won't, I won't share his name, but there was a brother there who I, I probably started to hear him preach when I was maybe in my early teens, and he preached at this funeral, uh, maybe 15, 20 minutes, and he preached Christ crucified. Uh, this man has no titles, no titles. He has um, no degrees, no initials after his name. Um, He is a student of the word. Don't confuse degrees with being a student of the word. They are not the same thing. He is a student of the word. Uh, He has no blog. He has no ministry named after him. He's not on any conference circuit. And he has absolutely no media exposure. As that feeble, weak servant stood there and proclaimed Christ crucified, for me sitting there, the place shook. It shook. Why? Because it was the power of God for salvation. The proclamation of Christ crucified. And that whosoever will may come and find salvation in and through Christ's atoning sacrifice. It makes no sense to the world. It is completely antithetical, such weakness, lowliness, and humiliation. It just flies in the face of all that our day holds dear and holds in esteem. Oh, but when the Spirit of God chooses to work through that simple proclamation, we have the going forth of the power of God in unparalleled fashion. Here's the fourth lesson. Do we hold fast to the content of the gospel? What is it? Christ crucified. Incarnation to glorification. Full revelation of God in Christ. Do we hold fast to the content of the gospel? Because it is foolishness to the world, We are tempted to change the gospel into something more palatable to the world. The gospel is easily lost beneath an avalanche of half-truths. According to recent surveys, I think this is a conservative estimate, more than 60% of churches in America today now preach the prosperity gospel. I think that is a conservative estimate conservative effort, estimate. I'm sure it is much larger than that. The gospel lost under an avalanche of half-truths. Do we hold fast to the content of the gospel? Fifth question, application is this. Do we define wisdom by this age, the present age, the world which is passing away, or the age to come? The one that was inaugurated through Christ's crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, and the one that will meet its consummation at Christ's return. Which age determines our understanding of wisdom? Is Christ crucified? That gory figure upon Calvary's cross, is that wisdom to us? Is a suffering Christ wisdom to us? Or are we still enamored with power, prestige, privilege, influence? And number six, the last, I do promise. Do we understand that Christ was crucified for us? There you go, friend. Do you understand it? Do we all understand it here this morning, young and old, boys and girls, men and women? Do we truly understand? The message of the gospel, folly in the world's eyes, that Christ was crucified for us. Our sin is so deep that only the execution of the Son of God can save us. Our sin's so deep, our sin's so black, our hearts so hardened. The wrath of God so transfixed that it was nothing but the execution of the Son of God upon Calvary's cross on behalf of sinners that could save us. Uh, When we grasp it, and this brings us back to Paul's central argument, when we grasp it, we will be thankful, right? When we grasp it, uh, we will be thankful awestruck, we will stand in absolute wonder. When we grasp it, we will be comforted and assured. And when we grasp it, we will be what? Humbled. How God saves. The Corinthians, they've lost sight of it. And as a result, what are they doing? They are quarreling. And quarreling why? Because they are seeking that which is valued in the world's eyes, esteem, status, through their own leaders. Oh no, when the gospel is really understood. And when what it means to be in Christ, identified with him, one with him, in his death, burial, and resurrection is really understood. And when it is really grasped that it is the mercy of God that covers the multitude of our sins. Yes, there is thankfulness. Yes, there is wonder. Yes, there is great comfort. And yes, there is great humility. And from that humility, then what? A desire to obey Paul's command. Which is what? That there should be no quarreling among you. But that you should all agree. You should all have the, be like-minded. That you should all live in that unity of the Spirit in Christ Jesus. Our Heavenly Father we pray that you would give us wisdom from above for these things this day. We pray that you would help us in our understanding, help us too in our application. And we pray that Christ would be our everything, that our hearts would be enraptured uh, with him, his mercy toward us, his great loving kindness, the depth of his humiliation and suffering for us, his present session and ministry at your right hand where he prays on our behalf. May all of these things daily be the source of our joy and our delight, and we seek it from you in his precious name. Amen.